welcome everyone. We're back again, live from the Peloton. I'm sitting here with Lionel Bernie to introduce and preview the new episode that I've sat down with Jens Kirkaliare, my teammate in EF Education First, but longtime friend from Orica Green Edge and Green Edge back in the day, classics man, West Flanderen, Jensy, as I like to call him. It's an epic episode. Lionel, welcome to the episode. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Mitch. Yeah, um, I've listened to your interview with Jens already. I just want to give the listeners a bit of a heads up. Head over to YouTube. um, Check out our show notes because early on in this conversation, Mitch, you talk about uh, Jens' first big win in a race called Le Samin in 2010 and a, and a really unusual sprint finish and it's worth watching it just to get the context for when uh, you hear Mitch and Jens talking about uh, how that race finish panned out so check the show notes and there'll be a link to the YouTube highlights of that of that race it's about a 10 minute clip of, of the the finale of the race but you could skip through and watch the last couple of minutes and just see um, what Mitch and Jens are talking about it's definitely worth it that we were we talk about the sprint there and like Lionel said skip through the last K it's pretty it's pretty epic because this is when I discovered who Jens was this was early in my career as well and I was like oh my god who is this guy and then I soon found out who he was we explain all this in the podcast coming up it's a really great podcast we talk about life as a as a Belgian Flanders, the races, what that means to them. A little bit about coronavirus as well. There's some interesting stuff in there. So sit back and enjoy this one, guys. I know you will. Cheers. Well, welcome, Jens. Jens Kukulair. Now, if I pronounce that correctly, Jens, do the proper pronunciation for me. Kukuleare. Yeah. All right. Because I've, I've been saying it wrong my whole life, but yeah. ultimately people say my name wrong when they're not from Australia. So you you, you roll with it. But um, welcome to the pod, mate. I know you're a big fan of the pod and we've both got our matching coffee mugs this morning. So yeah. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. I think I can say I'm a fan of the first hour. Really excited to be here. I'm actually a little bit nervous now. <laughs> well, I was I was telling you just before we press record, I was a little bit nervous because you think you know someone, and we we had a, a good good amount of time together. We I feel came into the peloton more or less at the same time. I was a year before you, and then afterwards we ended up in the same team in Orica Green Edge, and I felt. We're a little bit the same when we came into Green Edge because it were both a couple of years of pro under our belt, but fresh into a World Tour team, and we sort of bonded really quickly and became good mates there. And we had a couple of years apart, but we're back together again in EF Education First. So yeah, it's it's been a it's been a good good little friendship there. And also, like I said, I thought I knew you, but taking the layers back, I was like, oh, I don't actually know this guy that well. Let's get into it. To give everyone a little bit of background about Jens, because people mightn't know exactly who you are, and what I want to focus on today is, Jens, you're a true Belgian, you're a classics man, you're from Bruges, or Brugge, um, which is the capital of West Flanders. Let's talk about, for you, my first memory as you as a pro. I was a year ahead of you, so I was starting to get the feeling, it was my second year pro, it was your first year, I was starting to get the feeling of how hard the racing really was then. It was actually, you got like, wow, that was that was really hard last year, and then we we'll, win races that people don't necessarily know and a race like La Samin to give everyone a bit of example of this race 16 sectors of cobbles the Belgians have dubbed it as like a mini Roubaix I love that because it it is a tough little race but it's a prestigious little race because guys like McEwen have won it Gilbert's won it Damar Nicky Terpstra it has the makings of a classics rider and to give you everyone a bit of an example here it's 2010, Jens' first year with Cofetus. And I'll set up the finish of this race because I think this is pretty special. And I always, it sticks in my memory so well. There's a small bunch coming to the finish. And Nico Siemens is leading the bunch out. He's a Cofetus rider, Jens' teammate. He's leading this small bunch out. And then the camera follows a sprint. And the bunch sprints out on the right. And so they're following this bunch. And all these guys are hitting off. But you can't see any other Cofetus riders. You think, what's this guy been leading out? Who's he even leading out? Suddenly the camera pans back and there's this guy solo on the left. Red guy, Cofidus, Jens. It's a slightly uphill sprint. Jens is bread and butter and he just solos away to victory. And from that moment there, the Neo Pro has arrived. And following that, 
he goes on to win Three Days of West Flanders, the GC, and Nogra Course, which are very prestigious races before the big classics. Jens, before I go on anymore, tell me about that day, your first win as a pro, La Savine. Oh, what an intro. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very special for me as well. I think, uh, like you said, it really made me as a, as a, as a cyclist for the red, rest of my career. And it was a huge surprise for me because, um, so as I said, it was my first uh, year as a professional. As under 23, I was always good. I won my races, but I was never going to be the rider that said, okay, my first year pro, I'm going to win. I'm going to win races. Just finishing them or like doing my job for the team would have been, would have been great already. But then to win, uh, win races already as a Neo that, yeah, I never expected that. Um, and the year started actually really good. I started in, um, in Mallorca. Had some top 10 results there, like I think even a fourth or a fifth. Um, then Alharve, I finished uh, one stage third behind um, Contador and Sanchez, uh, which wasn't bad as well. Uh, but then I got sick. I had a, a stomach flu. Couldn't, yeah, I think I didn't touch the bike for five or six days. Started riding a little bit again. And then Samaden was actually the first race I was going to do again, but... I had no hopes of, of, of getting a good result because I hadn't, I hadn't been feeling good. Like I had a really, really bad uh, stomach flu. Uh, but I started the race and obviously I wasn't feeling that bad. And the closer we get to the finish, the, the better I felt. And then as you mentioned as well, Nico Samus, he did a really good job in uh, leading me out. Not only that, during the race, especially when we came into the final, he really gave me the morale of saying, hey man, you can do this. Uh, like mm. he, he has actually been really important for me in the early years of my career. Like the whole winter, we trained a lot together, and he was—I think he was around ten years older than me. So he gave me a lot of advice, and yeah, he gave me a good pep talk and saying that, "Come on, I'll just—I'll <laughs> do the lead out, and and you'll be able to finish close." And yeah, it was crazy. I, I remember just going all the way to the other side of the road because the wind was coming a little bit from the left and you had the fences so I thought oh, I'm going to be a little bit more protected and uh, yeah as soon as I head out the, the finish line was the only thing I thought about and yep, I won it so uh, yeah that was that was pretty special it was I want to talk about this sprint actually because it was so far out from what it, and it seems like you're going forever and like you just said then yes the wind was coming from the left but technically if you went to the left everyone could get a sit off you you just weren't worried about that you're like and when you watch the sprint too you come from the back um, I'm going to have to put this video up for everyone to see because it, it's quite an amazing sprint and you come from the back which makes it feel like Nico wasn't actually leading you out per se he was keeping that speed there can you take your mind back to that feeling before then? Did you have the confidence that you were going to win that day or you just thought, well, I've got to put a good result in here. I've just got to try. Yeah, I just had the idea of getting a good result. In. But the finish, like when you see it on footage, it doesn't really show how hard that finish line actually mm. is. It changed a little bit. The, the race now has changed a little bit from then, but it was a, a big road. I think the last three, four caves were always gradually a little bit uphill. Mm. And it's a hard race, so nobody's really fresh anymore uh, in the final. And uh, it's a very hard race. Yeah, and Nico, <laughs> he was just yeah, he was just keeping the pace really high. And I think one moment you see him look ba back, and and you see that he 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 sees me, um, and just keeps the speed as high as possible. And I remember from uh, the races that I won as under twenty three, I was always good in a in a finish like that when it was a little bit uphill. Um, I. I know myself, I know that I can go from a long way out. So I had that confidence um, and I actually still have it now um, <laughs> that when it's a hard finish, I can, I can go from a long way out. And um, yeah, I think I went at 300 meters to go. So a little bit before everybody else went. And I think that's why when I went to the left, nobody followed me because I thought, oh, <laughs> this is still way too long. <laughs> but uh, I, was, uh, I managed to keep it uh, all the way to the finish. So yeah, that was good. Oh, it was it was great because I always remember coming across the line like who won? Who, who was this guy? And then we saw the footage back. I'm like, oh, this guy won. And I soon got to know your name very much quickly because, like I said, the next sort of three four weeks, you were the the guy in the in the front in the next races. What I want to go ahead and and talk about now is you've then sort of made yourself into a classics man, and that's no surprise for me from where you're from. And that's what I want to get into now a little bit is. 
something that I've got to understand throughout my career is West Flanders, East Flanders, Flanders is the heart of Belgian cycling. Cobblestones, those races we all know, we all grow up to watch, cyclists anyway, watch and, you know, love. You grew up in that region, you know, like I said, with Bruges being the capital of West Flanders. This is, for me, I get this feeling like you potentially could be sitting in your front yard and you watch the race go past your front in the street. It's that sort of feeling. It's like in, in Australia, growing up in Richmond, playing for the Richmond you know, Tigers in the, in the AFL team, it's, it's sort of what you're su- supposed to do. That's the feeling I have. Yeah. And you've gone on and you've finished top 10 in, four times top 10 in, in Dwarsdale, Flanders, which is you know, the race through Flanders. You know, top 10 in E3, also another prestigious, uh, very prestigious Flanders race. Top 10 in, in Roubaix, not necessarily a Flanders race, but, but it's the Cobbles, second in Gent-Waverham, and you've also won two times Tour of Belgium. So, your Palmares also says that you are a classics man. What I want to go back and try and, and work out is, when did this start? As a young guy growing up, a Belgian guy, is it just something you're expected to do, or how is that as a young guy growing up in West Flanders with this racing around you? I would say we take it for granted. Uh, but it's almost like it's normal. Like, like you said, I grew up in Bruges, uh, Tour of Flanders. Used to start in Bruges for as long as I can remember. So every year that was like a thing. We, w- we, we would wake up, go to the Grote Markt and go and watch the riders sign, sign on. And then the whole afternoon you watch television. Uh, you watch Flanders on te- television. And also I remember when, when we used to go on holidays, we always went to the Alps. Um, it was usually two weeks. But my dad, he always made sure that one of the stages of the tour passed wow. really close to w- where we were. So I always found that, that it was normal. Hey, yeah, you see cycling races, it's, it's, it's something normal. But it's only <laughs> when, now when I, when I grow up, I, I actually realize oh, it's not that normal for everybody in the world. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's also I'm the only one in my family that um, raced. Uh, like my dad, he had a bike, but I think everybody in Belgium, they have a they have a they have a race bike. But I'm actually the first one in the in the whole family to start racing. So yeah, it's really special to have come this far. But actually, never like I remember when I started racing, I did it because it was fun, and I never thought, mm. oh, maybe one day I'll, I'll make it as a professional or or be able to race Tour of Flanders. Like I remember standing there or like start of Flanders or, or watching a stage in the Tour de France, I never thought that maybe I could be one of them. It's mm. only really late, like I only started racing when I was 16, that I started cycling, but still then the first three, four years, I never thought, oh, maybe I'll be able to to, to get a career out of this. But uh, yeah, it did. So yeah, that, that that's pretty special. So your, your dad necessarily wasn't a racer. Um, he was just a fan of cycling, as as you said, and maybe most people than not were fans of cycling in 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 your region or in West Flanders or in Flanders. It was just a common commonality, commonality where you went to school. And did you even did you speak about cycling at school between yeah. friends? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. The, like the the, it's not the number one sport. I think football is still the number one sport in Belgium, but hmm. cycling. A couple of weeks in the year, it's by far the number one sport, like during the classics, during the tour, uh, when the world's on the nationals, then it's like a really big thing. And that's what everybody talks about. So for me, it feels like ah, it's just a normal thing that everybody knows a little bit about cycling. They know the names, they know the races, um, mm. but it's actually not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then you, you sort of talked about a little bit before, and I, this is something that expectation, because you're like... I never thought I was going to be a pro rider. Then I became pro, but I never thought then I was going to be a guy racing these classics or the tour. But actually now you're not only racing those races, you're at the pointy end of those races. What is that like, that expectation? Is it is it a helpful thing growing up in these regions in this part of Belgium where, like you said, everyone knows about it? That can also, I can imagine, that could also be a helpful thing, but that also could be a hard thing because everyone does know about it. If you're not going well, there's this expectation you've got to go well. You're the guy from Bruges who should be at the front of the classics. So what is it like growing up with that expectation or having that expectation now, sorry? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. I think especially for me coming in uh, with the professionals and winning races that early in my career, 
Um, maybe put a little bit, bit of pressure on me. I remember after those races, we went to the classics uh, when I was a Neo Pro, and everybody already expected me to, like, not I wouldn't say win, uh, like Dwarf of Flandern or or um, uh, not 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 the big ones, but the ones uh, mm. just below that. But like, I was good enough to win those races. But the classics, that's just a whole other level. Um, yeah, and you do feel a little bit more pressure. But I've always, yeah. I've always, um, as long as I felt every year that I was progressing and getting better in those races, I was happy. Um, and uh, the longer you race, the more you realize that it's not easy to win, uh, mm. like just to ride a final or to be close in the final uh, in the classics. And um, I would keep trying every year, but it's not, uh, it's not easy. Well, it mightn't be easy for you, but I tell you what, it's a hell of a lot harder for us who aren't from the region. And because, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand who haven't raced through these races themselves, but it's literally like a maze. And I mean, you think you know your roads around wherever you live, but Belgium's a whole nother level because there are a million roads. And we seem to crisscross and looped around and do all these roads. That's what it feels like. It feels like a spider web. For the guys from Flanders, though, they everyone alludes to it it's like racing in your home backyard you know you know the roads like the back of your hand but something that i think really helps to that is the memories and i was speaking to another guy before this podcast just to get a bit of an idea of that feeling and he was telling me he goes the way i learned the roads was subconsciously we used to have the tv on every saturday every sunday watching the races and i wasn't really into cycling that much but we always watched the race and one thing that stuck in his mind he said was Johan Museo up the 10 boss, 10 bosser. That was that climb. That's how I remembered that climb. And then on that corner, there was a crash. And then on that sort of, you know, cobble, so-and-so attacked. So the whole lot of Flanders for him has memories. It's not like he's learning the roads like when I came. Oh, yeah, that's the Quaramont. That's right. And then after that, there's the big road and yada, yada. For him, it was memories of different stuff that happened in the races. Is that sort of how it happened for you with learning the roads yeah that's exactly true like um i can imagine if you're not from belgium and you don't speak the language it's a maze uh because mm-hmm. we have all these perks you have the Paterberg, the canary bed the the falcon bed it's already if maybe if we would translate it in english it would make it a little bit easier um but still there's there's so many Bergs, you have to remember yeah. um, and that's true for us it's uh, it has a lot to do with memories like one memory that I do have the first time that I did Quaremont Patersberg Koppenberg was with my father and my cousins can't remember which race it was but we had a, like a family get together and uh, one of the classics was on and I remember one of my cousins telling me oh, can't be that hard the cobbles and, and the climbs that they're <laughs> all suffering and and pushing so hard it can't be that hard and my dad said well next week we'll go up there here we go in one of my dad my dad's blue vans put all the bikes in there and we'll just do like a little loop and i remember we did the 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 eddie merck's route it's it's like a route with signs it's still there now and it starts on the kleusberg and then you go to quarman patersberg do some other climbs and uh, and then the Koppenberg, which is uh, probably one of the of the hardest, wasn't in there, but we did it anyway just to try. So that that were some good first memories, eh? like the first time you really get to know those uh, that region and those climbs, and uh, especially the Koppenberg. I remember we were all standing at the bottom on our bikes, and we would each try just to get to the top without <laughs> falling off. So uh, yeah, that's true. You have a lot of memories with a lot of those those things like i remember i did this one really long training ride with a friend in the Vlaamse ardennen uh, in the region of tour of flanders and we punctured somewhere on the on the padestraat and uh, we changed the tire and we we um we left the tire there we uh, oh, yeah. uh put it around like a like a, a light pole or whatever uh, and then a couple of days later there was a race there and the, the tire was still there so that's, <laughs> you saw it on the TV. Yeah, yeah, it was still there. So, no, that's definitely true. You have a you have a lot of memories, and that makes it a lot easier to remember all the all the different cobblestone sections and, and climbs. Yeah, totally. And the, like, everyone has that feeling from their own area, and it might not necessarily be that you race there, but you go training or whatever, and you're like, oh yeah, last week or that happened there. And I just think like it was such a great point that you you remember it like that that 
you don't actually think about that at that moment when you're going up the Koppenberg, but there's there's a personal connection to it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a race-winning moment at all. It's just yeah. more, oh, yeah, I got dropped at that moment. And, like, we come as as foreigners to the region and we slowly create our memories but that's when we're racing whereas you've already got those memories laid day one when you start racing and I think that's when we talk about you guys having that advantage I see that as a massive advantage and at the end of it yes you still have to be physically good and you have to know how to race but knowing the course is already done and you're like all right let's just race and it makes a huge difference if you if you pass there in the race or if you can pass there on training or like silly things like going and try to do all the climbs with the family because in the race everything happens so fast you have the sports director yelling in your ear that it's a left and a right and then this climb and that climb and it's easy to forget what, where the hell you are but then on training you yeah you see everything a little bit better and yeah i think mm. definitely if you're if you're not from here and you come here the first couple of times it, it's not easy to remember everything that's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, of course, to remind me to tell you that this week's episode is sponsored by Gymshark. Richard, who are Gymshark? Are you a Gymshark? Well, I mean, this is, you know, the shark for us obviously only means one thing, doesn't it? Vincenzo Nibali, but it's got nothing to do with Vincenzo Nibali or Messina. It's gym kit, gym gear, but not just gym gear, it's sports clothing. And, uh, you and I, Lionel, have been lucky enough to receive a little bundle of goods. In fact, I believe we're both wearing our green track shorts, aren't we? Embarrassingly enough. Luckily, we can't see each other. We are indeed. Yeah, we're not We're not in the same room, but we are We are clashing. We've, we've come in the same outfit today. It's going to be awful at the tour, isn't it? Or wherever we happen to be on the road if we're wearing the same clothing. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, I must say that I'm very impressed by... I've worn, got a lot of wear out of already the base layer. Um, I got a short sleeve and a long sleeve element base layer. Very reasonably priced and... Uh, really comfortable and really good for cycling because they're very long in the body so when you're hunched over your bars it doesn't ride up the back and uh, I wore that a couple of days ago for a long bike ride and found it exceptionally comfortable. Well I ordered uh, yeah I got the shorts and the hoodie what I went for mostly was stuff that I can wear after I've got back from a bike ride and and I've had a shower and I'm kind of relaxing and I'm feeling you know a post-workout feeling uh for the massage yeah before before the massage and the refueling of course richard just very comfortable clothing to wear the hoodie in particular um you know very nice uh, very nice garment with a full zip and uh, obviously a hood and uh, I've, I've also gone for that in green i hope you haven't ordered the hoodie in green as well richard petrol blue for me oh, lionel what a relief well, if you want to check out uh, Gymshark's range of clothing, uh, whether you're cycling or running, I actually ordered a couple of T-shirts for running in as well. So, um, you know, very, real versatile range of clothing. Go to gymshark.com slash thecyclingpodcast. That's gymshark.com slash thecyclingpodcast. Now let's get back to Mitch's conversation with Jens Kukulera. Now, let's want to talk a little bit about the current state. And this is something I haven't talked too much about in the podcast because I feel like everyone is, it's on everyone's mind anyway. So we don't need to get continually reminded about it. But it's their coronavirus and the lockdown life, something that everyone has gone through. So everyone can relate to what is happening at the moment. But I think not many people can relate as closely as you can because you actually had coronavirus early in yep. in lockdown. Tell yep. me about that, Jens. Three weeks after uh, opening weekend, um, I got say, I think the weekend after opening weekend, lockdown started in Belgium. And then two weeks after that, I, uh, I got really sick. I had, a, I had a fever for almost 10 days. And the first three days were really, uh, like really high fever. That was the only symptom that I had. I didn't have the, like, I didn't lose my smell, I, I didn't lose my taste, I didn't have the, the dry cough, like all the other symptoms uh, you would typically have with the coronavirus, I didn't have. Um, and it never really got to a point that it was that bad that I had to go to the hospital to, like it, it didn't never really get that critical. It was just like, I think normally when you have a, like you have a flu, you have fever for two or three days and then it's over. 
So it did bother worry me a little bit that it was 10 days, but in the end, there wasn't anything else I could do. Like there wasn't a antibiotics you could take. You just had to, yeah. How'd you know you had it? Only uh, three weeks ago now, I um, we we were able to do some oh. tests here in Belgium. At the time, you at the time you didn't know you had it. No, I didn't know. And I think if I would have known, the the weeks after would have been maybe a little bit different because yeah, I had I had contact with the doctors every day, and they said it's possible you have it, but it's also possible possible you don't have it. I had my last day of uh, of fever, then I waited another week, then I started, I wouldn't call it training, but just moving a little bit, uh, doing some rides with the family on the bike, and then uh, gradually progressing a little bit. But then the third week that I started riding again, I had a really bad, uh, how we call it, a setback. Not, mm. I, I didn't get sick, but I just had almost a full week that I was dead tired. Like I could do the, just the normal things at home, but as soon as I tried to get on the bike or, 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 or like exercise a little bit, I, was, I wasn't able to do it. So I had a, another week almost uh, that I didn't do anything. And then after that, I started feeling uh, better and better. And I think that's almost five, six weeks ago now. And I just had like a first three week block um, now that's finished where I actually feel normal again. I feel like a, a cyclist again. But So um, you were saying that Later on, you, you found out, just recently, you found out that you had it. Yeah, so I think three or four weeks ago, we were able to do the test in Belgium where they could see if you have um, antibodies in the, in the blood. So I did it and it said like that I had the, that I had the virus. And then actually the thing um, that I was a little bit worried about, I think in the end, we will all have to do it uh, or, or at least um, everybody that's been positive and wants to start racing again, they have to do um, an extra test for the heart and then for the lungs. Um, basically, the tests we have to do in the winter um, to get our license, I had to do it again now just to see if the virus didn't affect anything there. So I was a bit nervous for that. I remember the morning that I had to do the tests, uh, my wife, Sheena, she said, um, Aren't you a little bit nervous? And actually, up until that moment, I was okay. But she planted the seed in my head, and I started. Oh, I really started to get a little bit worried. <laughs> Come to the hospital, and normally I just had to do the the test in rest. But the doctor said, "Ah, uh, to be sure, we'll put you on the bike, do like um, yeah, the, the the bike test," and that really got me worried. <laughs> but oh, then no. uh, in the end, everything was good. So they didn't see any. Um, any problems with the heart also the lungs were good so uh yeah that was a bit did you did you think back on the time and go once you got the positive test back afterwards once you were feeling well did you think oh my god yeah that makes sense now or did you already think that when you had the sickness that you had coronavirus yeah after 10 days of of fever I, i like yeah it's like what the doctor said it's possible you had it but yeah we're not really sure it's not like when i had the test that i saw God, I had it. Yeah. When when did I have this? <laughs> no, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I definitely know when I had it and it made sense. And there was no worry about passing it on to the, your kids and your wife? Well, that was the thing. So the the, the moment that I had fever, uh, the, the rules in Belgium were uh, we could still go outside for a run or for a walk. It wasn't like in Spain and Italy that we had to stay inside. And if you had it, yeah, you had to make like a little quarantine for yourself. But yeah, I have two kids. We're we're all living in the mm. same house. I think it didn't make any point of me um, like staying in my room for for the next ten days because if I ha- have it, then they they probably already had it as well. So um, mm. yeah, we. I, I, and they I, ne- they never contracted it. Well, uh, I'm, they haven't been tested. My youngest son, um, he was sick before me, so it might be that I got it from him. But then my oldest son, um, he didn't have anything. Um, and my wife, she was, she was really tired for um, like almost a week. Uh, like I was sleeping a lot, obviously, but she was sleeping the same hours uh, as, as I was. Back then we thought that it was just a situation. We had two kids at home. They sucked the energy right, <laughs> right out your body. So we just thought it was that. Like uh, also I was sick, so I wasn't able to do that much um, like I always try to do as much as possible, but those ten days uh, wasn't wasn't that easy to do a lot. So we just thought, oh, she's tired because of the because of the kids oh, yeah. and the whole situation. 
but it might be that she that she had it as well and that that were her symptoms mm, it's interesting it's really interesting because we all you know understanding now it was so contagious and you know it was so drastic for some people but it's it's just so different for everyone and i think that's i think the point here is that you know you can if you're fit and healthy like you said maybe your wife had it but it, it affected her in another way yeah. it wasn't life-threatening not that we need to go oh yeah it's all okay for everyone but i think it's very difficult to sort of get the real truth of what coronavirus is and how it affects us because it's in the media we only see the you know the most drastic cases yeah. um with with deaths and things like that so it's it's interesting to hear from you know someone who's actually had it um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and someone who's in a similar position to me i've got two kids i'm also a sportsman so i'm just wondering what it would be actually like so um it, was, it wasn't that much fun so no, <laughs> you're no. not missing you're not missing anything <laughs> I'm I'm happy to hear the story, but I don't necessarily need to do it myself. Um, what I want to talk about too is, and you talk you spoke about a little bit then is is lockdown life, and lockdown life has been different for everyone. Um, for me, it was like a whole bunch of Zwift stuff, and then training outside again. And I didn't necessarily love the first time I went back outside, but I'm back in now a good routine. And now it's about focusing on. We've actually got a goal now, goalposts. But before that, it was sort of training to keep fit. And you sort of spoke a little bit about that. What was that like for you in lockdown? And how did you go about that with an idea of there might be racing at the end of the year? What was your whole theory in it? Yeah, well, for me, it was obviously a little bit different. I think it's been almost 16 weeks now since uh, since the lockdown. And I can say more than half of it was just um, feeling better again. Like I was never mm. uh, really thinking on... Just maintaining the the form because the form was completely gone. <laughs> I didn't I didn't touch the bike for 17 days, and then yeah, for two three weeks after that, I just felt that the body wasn't wasn't normal. Uh, there was still something something different. But now the last four or five weeks, uh, it's been going better. Um, and like you say, we all we, we we know a little bit when we're gonna start racing again. I'm not I don't know my program yet, but we all know it's gonna be in August. And it makes a huge difference, I find, um, that you have that goal. You know when you're supposed to be good again. So uh, you can actually plan something together with the trainer. And it makes a, a huge difference uh, mentally, I think. Um, I hear from a lot of riders now that like for me it was different because that, that, that one or two months that we were training for nothing was difficult, but I didn't have it. I was just, I was just sick and recovering. Um, mm. But a lot of guys, they say, yeah, you just you just do whatever, but you didn't really have a goal, and uh, it made it hard sometimes just to yeah train without a goal. I think now it's a lot different because we actually have that goal, and I think gives a, a little bit more motivation to hurt yourself on training. Yeah, and that, I think that's a funny thing because like I was out there riding, and I was like, I should be just enjoying this fact that I can actually ride for once without having to do efforts or you know five hours I could just do three hours or one hour or whatever not even focusing on time just doing a ride but it was so funny because it was so foreign to me I'd never done that and I was like I couldn't work it out I'm like why can't I just enjoy riding because in a sick way (laughs) we like having that focus that reason to push ourselves, that reason to do efforts that come home feeling of I've done it it's in the bank it's all good and for me it wasn't the same feeling that 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 joyous feeling of just riding just to ride i actually have it a lot that when you're racing and when you're training for some some goals that you think how nice would it be just to ride for a week or 10 days like do a big trip and if you want to stop somewhere for for uh, for some food or then you stop somewhere if you want to relax you relax and if you want to go nine hours you do nine hours it's actually I, I have it a lot in the season that I think oh, would be nice just to just to ride, not do anything mm. else than than that, and not having to do twenty forties and efforts and this and that. Just just ride, but right. But so, did you even get to experience that, or were you just still too sick? No, I felt way too sick. Uh, it's I was just riding. I wasn't doing any efforts, but it's just yeah. I felt on the bike for a very long time that there was something wrong and. Yeah, you don't want to push it. You don't want to ride too long, and it's also not knowing when it's gonna get better that made it um, a little bit more difficult. And and you saw a lot like in Belgium for like I think the first four weeks in Belgium, uh, the first four weeks of the of the lockdown, 
like the big cities, Brussels, Antwerp, Ghent, they were dead. Uh, and a lot of guys that did it, they just rode there with the bike and rode through Brussels on roads where normally you mm. would never, never be able to go because of the traffic. And it actually looked like a lot of fun. So uh, I missed that. Hmm. I wasn't able to do that. Well, let's, let's go back and talk about the classics now because I think something that's going to be really funny this year is racing these races at the end of the year. Not only is it going to be different sort of temperature and climate and a feeling where the, the leaves are going to be falling from the trees opposed to sprouting out in spring, that's going to have a different effect. I think also that's also going to have a psychological effect because we've been racing for, you know, 10, 12 years in the peloton and the season has a flow for us. I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but for me, we're in June and all of a sudden I want to push myself. The sun's hot. That's when I usually train for the summer, you know, getting ready for, for me, the end of the season, the Vuelta or whatever it is. And I'm naturally doing that now, even though those races aren't going to be there in their normal spot. My body is naturally following a sort of flow. So I'm wondering how it's going to be racing full tilt classics at the end of the year when generally at the start of the year you're so motivated for it the spring's there and now at the end of the year when you're normally like ah season's rolling in and it's like all right mitch (coughs) rubay what are you thinking because as as i'll just quickly run through as the season sits i've got the calendar here you know we're going to have gent wavelgum starting with gent wavelgum on the 11th of october skeletal price on the 14th then you've got flanders on the 18th Depunner on the 21st and Roubaix finishing with Roubaix on the 25th of October which is essentially the last race of the year um the Vuelta is still going to be going on then but 25th of October like if you're still racing then it's normally somewhere in China on holiday tour yeah or you you're, you're completely done would have been done for two weeks what are you what are you thinking about this what are your yeah. thoughts what are the Belgians thinking I think it's gonna be it's gonna be different um for a couple of reasons I think one uh, one factor that's going to be important is probably a lot of guys will have done a, a grand tour already. I think you know as well that if you if you've done a grand tour, it makes a it makes a big difference in how you feel after that. Then a uh, second thing is uh, the weather. I think chances of bad weather in October or in March uh, or April. It's I think it's pretty similar. But it's uh, the biggest difference is in the head. I think you know in March April. It's possible you have some bad weather and some rain, but you know, okay, it's the classics. It's part of the classics. But then in October, you also know that it's going to rain, but then it's like, oh, I don't want it to rain. <laughs> you just really, really hope that it's going to be like good weather and dry. Uh, maybe it's going to be different now because it's it's still the classics. It's, it's Flanders-Roubaix. But for me, like, I usually go well in bad weather or i wouldn't say well but i'm not i'm not getting a lot worse in, in bad weather except when it's in october then it's really yeah. uh, you don't really want it anymore so i think that's uh some things that are going to make it different i think maybe a, a third point that might be important as well as um what the roads are going to be like because of the farmers um mm. like uh, I, I always know when you go riding in october here um around uh, in my region in flanders um the farmers they start uh harvesting the corn and the roads they're slippery as hell it's unbelievable oh, no. yeah october is always really dangerous you, you hear a lot of uh like uh, crashes and accidents um, in october just because of that so i'm curious how that's gonna be uh when we have to race on it so i think that might be different as well uh, and not only for Flanders I think for Roubaix as well the cobbles if you ride them any other time in the year uh, than in the classics they're always a little bit different so um, yeah. I'm really curious how, how that's going to be as well have you, ri- have you ridden the cobbles at different times of the year in, in <coughs> Roubaix? yes um, Roubaix under 23 was always um, uh, the last week of June but it's actually funny that the three times I did it of the, uh, it was always in the rain uh, so as oh. a professional I've never done any Roubaix in the rain but as under 23 every year uh, it was wet um, in June as well you yeah, know like it should be dry then yeah, yeah yeah yeah. so yeah that was different and also there's a lot more uh, grass in between the cobbles um, I've done it twice in the stage in the tour um, and it's completely different I would almost say that it's easier because the grass in between the cobbles makes it uh, a more flat surface 
and it's mm. actually not that hard so um it makes a huge difference in uh, in tire pressure and and uh, and just the feel on the cobbles as well so i'm not sure at the end of the season how that's going to be but uh i'm, I'm yeah it's definitely going to be different than uh, in april yeah because like when i was i used to live in belgium once upon a time and i stayed one year late in the season for a guy's wedding and i, I have a feeling it was some, late in october but i always remember it was cold then it was it was actually much colder than say the spring because roubaix typically is at the end of the at the the end of the classic so yeah. really in spring and it's getting quite warm then so i'm i'm thinking like the end of october it's going to be whether it's dry or wet it's still going to be much colder yeah yeah usually think? usually flanders and roubaix like I've, I've only had it also one time that, that that flanders was still really cold but usually those two races are the first races that the weather is getting is getting a little bit warmer and that's true it's going to be different um in october and i always like uh, cyclocross season starts uh, usually in September, mm. but it's in October that we really start to watch it. Um, and the Koppenberg Cross is always first uh, of November, I think, or early November. And if you think about the bad Koppenberg Cross editions there has been in the last 10 years, you really start to think, oh, and we have Roubaix on that day. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you just know that odds are against us to have a... Uh, a good weather Roubaix this year. I don't mind that it's going to rain, but if it's raining and five degrees, uh, nobody's going to be happy with that, I think. Oh, mate. Well, well, you've set it up, Yenzi. I tell you what, I, I, I did say this is, I did say this a few years ago too, that I, I wouldn't mind doing a wet Roubaix, but we just reconned a wet Roubaix a couple of years ago and it was ended up the Roubaix was dry, but yeah. two days before it was wet and you said you've raced it on a wet Roubaix. I tell you what, I was so scared. Yeah, I was really I couldn't control the bike on the few sectors we did, and I was yeah. thinking, how could I ever race this? Yeah. And I don't know what it was like when you raced under twenty three in the wet, but what do you what are your thoughts if there I, was a wet Roubaix? It's completely different. My memories from under twenty three aren't that clear anymore, but I do remember when I did the um, uh, stage in the Tour in two thousand fourteen when Lars Bohm won. That was just um, yeah. I really liked it. Uh, I think I finished uh, fifth or sixth, so I had a I had a really good race that day, um, and I liked it. But it's because I got you were racing in the front, and everything's everything was going as I as I hoped it was going to be. But I think for the it could have been like a, a really bad day as well. Um, and yeah. from the stories I've heard afterwards, that everywhere between position 20 and 160 it was the most horrible day of their lives uh, but it's crazy like you, you, you hit the cobblestone sectors and you know okay if something happens now in front of me that's yeah it's, it's you can't do anything you can't stop yeah, yeah. and uh, one thing I remember as well is the first two or three cobblestone sections we did that year you just see guys flying left and right like the first three cobblestone sections you just saw crashes everywhere like uh, guys are going straight in corners, left, right, punctures. Oh, it was just, and then you, some guys tried to go in the gutter, but the, the water was so high that you couldn't really see if it was like a, a deep water or, oh, it was just, it was just, man. But I really liked it. I had a good day. It, it was also, like I said, it was wet, but it wasn't cold. I think it was still between 15 and 20 degrees. So you weren't, also the race was that hard. You never got cold. Um, but it, yeah, it was special. I liked it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, Yenzi, you've set it up, mate. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the pod today. And yeah. I can't wait to catch up with you. It's still going to be a couple of months away, but I'm hoping that you're going to be on the Classics program as well with me and we can spend some time up there in Belgium and experience this, I think, look, I'm saying it now. I'm probably going to hate it at the time and love it <laughs> afterwards, but it's going to be a really special moment to race these races whatever races we're all doing at the end of the year yeah. it's going to be weird it's going to be different there's going to be different winners and I'm hoping I can pull some su success out of this as you yeah. get my head around it and uh, get into this racing at the end of the year yeah I hope so too it's definitely going to be going to be something I just hope that we're going to be able to finish the program as it is now I think everybody's going to be happy with that and uh, thank you Mitch for having me on Life in the Peloton cheers mate
Well, there we have it. Big Enzi giving us a little bit of an insight to what this year is going to be like. Plus what life was like with coronavirus. I tell you what, it was actually a bit of a scary insight there to hear that he he had it and then he didn't really know he had it. And I think everyone's probably been in that situation or can relate to that situation of that thought of like what that would be like or, you know, what life is really like in lockdown. So I tell you what, it was a really, really interesting chat with Jens and by the end of the chat, I was actually getting very, very excited about the classics again, which doesn't take a lot for me, but I love talking about the cobblestones and just hearing him talk about riding across the cobblestones at different times a year. I started getting really excited again. What do you think of the episode there, Lionel? It was great, Mitch. I mean, let's go back to the beginning to start with and uh, just remind people if you've listened to the episode and you want to check out the sprint finish that you talked about at the start, um, we've posted a link to YouTube in the show notes. But um, what I love about that and and the fact that Cucalera is a true Flandrian born in Bruges, um, but Le Samin is, it's such a hipster's race now. It's such a hipster's Flandrian classic. It doesn't even take place in Flanders. It's actually just over the border in Wallonia, isn't it? But it still fits into that part of the season. And I was just reflecting on how, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you'd never have got to watch that race on TV in the UK. But now it's a real kind of midweek treat for the, I was going to say for the purists, but there's something really, um, you know, stripped down about a race like that. You know, it's just a hard afternoon out um, racing and well as you, if you watch the clip you'll see the riders in three quarter length um, leggings and and winter gloves you know it's uh, it's a day when uh, you have quite some effort taken to get up to you know get the body temperature up um, but you mentioned the coronavirus and 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 just hearing him talk about having the test just to check that it's not done any kind of lasting damage to um, to his system with I mean that was that had me on tenterhooks a little bit and I'm sure that there's um, you know, there's going to be some worrying times for um, for riders, you know, who may have had the virus, but without even knowing it and, and will get tested and, and find that they've they've got antibodies. And, and, and I think, you know, the, that uncertainty um, really came across um, listening to Jens talk about going through the illness and, and really saying it's not something that you you want to risk getting. Yeah, totally. And, and just to go back on what you were saying is something we've missed from this year and we're definitely going to miss with the Classics being at the end of the year. Suddenly we're going to be at the biggest races all of a sudden. Whereas before we had these beautiful races to build us up, to get us, to get the palette sort of salivating, getting ready. You know, La Samian, you had Nokura course, you had West Flanders, you had these races to sort of get yourself ready. And then the next week you had the big boys. All of a sudden this year, we're going to be straight into the big boys. And so it's going to be a bit of a shock. And I personally loved feeling and watching those races or doing those races, preparing for the for the classic season. But all of a sudden, I'm going to have to be ready day one, come Ghent Wavelgum, I'm going to have to be firing. So it's definitely going to be a really different situation, um, let alone at the end of the year. Who knows? And it's I'm just trying to get my head around it. Um, it was interesting changing ends about it. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing my teammates again. So it's going to be a new thing as well. Um, I do want to say also, guys, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, and Lionel was just talking to me about it, there's a new link up. Go across and check out the new merch. We've stocked up the shop again. Got some new stuff in there. Summer's around the corner, so I've put some singlets in there. Someone saw me running in a life in a peloton singlet, so they're like... I want to get my hands on one of them. I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's put them up in the shop. Lionel, what have you got there? Have you got a new link up on the on the website? Well, yeah, we've actually, on our website, thecyclingpodcast.com, if you click on shop, we've got a link that tr- takes everyone straight through to your merchandise. You've got, um, well, you've got caps, T-shirts. You've even got a little T-shirt for toddlers, which I've got my eye on. I'm quite uh, quite taken with that. I might be placing an order for one of those this week. For yourself, is it? Are you that size, are you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, I want to clarify. If I'm not for no, I, I have a I have a small toddler. I think it would look great in one of those. It'd be a bit of a stretch for me. I thought you'd been on the full lockdown in lockdown. No, not the case. <laughs> no, I have been doing quite a bit of cycling though, Mitch. I mean, not in your league, but ten hours a week is quite considerable for me. That's uh, that's the upper end of my uh, my limits. I've been quite pleased with myself lately. And the weather's been kind in the UK. 
it has yeah i mean it, it's a very strange feeling you know normally we'd be what 10 days away from traveling over to france for the tour de france and and daily coverage of the tour for the cycling podcast and to know that that isn't happening just yet is is quite surreal and and, and every time you you're talking there about the races coming round they're going to come round in a different order the light is going to be different you know i mean i'm just thinking about all the little things that we're so used to the rhythm of the day race day you know it could be as we get into october you know races aren't finishing at 5 or 5:30 uh, they'll be finishing at you know three thirty or four just to make sure that the the light's not fading. You know, there, there's going to be some, and it's going to be all about who adjusts to those little differences. I think, and uh, it's going to be a fascinating period of racing. It's going to be so bizarre. I, I, exactly what you said. The light, the feeling of the the atmosphere around the race. Like like I said, the the leaves falling, and I I can just purely envision myself being in Italy racing. Trevally, these races where there's this beautiful atmosphere around the race. It's a bit colder. The sun comes out. The day gets a bit darker earlier. And you get this feeling of, yeah, you know what, the season's almost done. But And I know I'll be able to get my head around it, but I'm, I can't feel it yet. To be going to the biggest, hardest races of the year in that slow down sort of feeling, it's going to be going against the grain. But you know, we go, I guess we're just going to have to do it and and get into it. But do you know, Mitch, what your what your first race back is is due to be? Are you able to confirm that yet? Look, I'm. Our team's looking at doing three little bubbles. Um, they're going to go the Tour de France sort of bubble where they do Dauphiné and the Tour, and then you got the Giro d'Italia bubble, which will do like Torino and and the Giro, roughly. You know, there's some races either side of that. And then there's the Classics crew, which will do Poland at the start of the, the racing, a bit of a break, and then go in for the Classics with Bing Bank and then the rest of the Classics. So that's what I'm on. Um, I couldn't miss Roubaix. You know, if I, I was looking forward to doing the Giro, but those two collide. And to finish the year with Roubaix, it's going to be cold. It's going to be wet. We discussed this in the pod. But I tell you what, I can't think of a better way to... Th- to finish the year it's always normally a break for me after Roubaix but to think like oh yeah I'm closing the season out with Roubaix that's just that little bit of extra motivation actually it brings a smile to my face that race is going to be it's going to be hell but it's going to be beautiful by the time we get to the velodrome well I mean who who knows it could be a beautiful autumnal day or it could be you know winter come early I mean you just I mean it's the same in spring but um, the sense that if a bad day in late October could be worse than a bad day in April couldn't it so you know yeah good good luck good luck to you guys definitely yeah i'm i'm preparing myself for the worst like i said in the podcast i've been in belgium late october and it's cold even when the sun's out it's still cold it's not italy um so i'm preparing myself for a cold day a cold end of the season don't know how i'm going to do that but i'm mentally started psyching myself up hang in for the talking luft in two weeks time back on life in the peloton's feed because we get back there and we have a chat and Jens gives us some good insights to life before helmets, caps, luft. So guys, until then and until two weeks time, thanks for tuning in. I'm Mitch Stocker. Cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.